What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back to The Peripheral. A uh, quick update. I will be at the True Crime Podfest in Chicago, July 13th. Go out to tcpf2019.com for more info. Also, I'm going to be in Manchester and London, July 6th and 7th. So Manchester on July 6th and London on July 7th. Uh, check the Gen Y social media for tickets and information. Today's episode, I speak with Zoe. She is so strong and brave. She was traveling to meet friends who had other plans in mind. There is talk about sexual assault, but Zoe keeps it very light and not graphic. We talk about the attacks and crimes that happened against her. And then what happens when she went to report it to the police? It's not an easy episode to listen to, but I applaud Zoe for telling her story. I'm Zoe from Minnesota. I currently live in Oklahoma. I'm transgender. I'm also found out recently that I'm on the autism spectrum. So that's kind of interesting. I have PTSD. And today I'm going to be going into an event that greatly altered my life. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say you have PTSD because of this event? Absolutely, yes. Unfortunately. How long ago was this? When did it start? It started on April 1st, 2011. Just a little bit of backstory here about myself. And it sort of will explain that I've done this a lot before. I've flown out places to visit people 10, 20 times. And nothing ever bad happened. This is the time the bad happened, the thing you don't expect, especially when you're comfortable. So I was homeschooled. I really didn't have a social life. I was homeschooled first through 12th grade. And so basically all the friends I made all happened online. So once I reached the point where I could travel and stuff, of course, I wanted to go meet all of these people. So I traveled for four or five years every time I could. It was great. I made friends. I saw the world. Got out of isolation. It sounds actually very healthy and natural. Yeah, it was fantastic. And the life experiences I got from that were part of what made me who I am. Don't take what happened in this story and try to shelter yourself. Just try to learn what could go wrong and how to stop it. Well, you're traveling. People travel every day. I would hope that nobody would say, see, this is what happens when you leave the house and go out into that scary world. I've gotten that a lot over this by a lot of people. So anyways, I guess I'll jump right in. On April 1st, 2011, I flew into Portland, Oregon, and I was planning to meet a friend there and then catch an Amtrak up to Tacoma, Washington to meet another friend there a week later. I landed. The flight went great. Everything was fantastic. I was excited, and my friend wanted me to go over to her apartment. Her name was Jess, by the way. 
that was sort of unusual for me to go instantly over to somebody's private area. Usually I'd go to a hotel first, but they were very insistent. So that's what I did. It was a flight from Minnesota. It was five or six hours. I was hungry and they invited me over to eat. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go along. So I end up over at their place and we eat. It was really standard except for one thing. She had a person in her life, a uh, romantic partner, that I had never been introduced to, never been mentioned, nothing like that. His name was Josh. I would unfortunately get to know Josh pretty well over the next five days. They had, I don't know what if it was in the food, if it was drink or something, I was drugged to the point that I became unconscious. After eating, I talked a bit. We were making polite conversation and slowly I started feeling off and I was trying to go excuse myself. And then I sort of have a blank right there. So please forgive me if there's a period here that I just don't know exactly everything that happened. What happened afterwards is I woke up with a chain around my neck. Were you in the same location or were you in a different place? I was in the same location. I was in their house where they lived. I got taken there. They picked me up at the airport. Apparently, he'd moved in like four months ago. And your female friend, she's okay with this? Honestly, I have questions about that to this day. She never participated, but she also never did anything that would... She stayed completely neutral, is the best way to say it. And I can understand, granted the situation, I can understand a little bit afterwards. This will come in later. After I woke up, I had a collar, a chain around my neck. I was in the corner of this interior room. I think it was first floor, a half basement maybe. I was very disoriented. I didn't really know what was going on. That's when Josh came into the room. He had a gun. He had a little Glock. Showed me it was loaded. Held it to my head. Just gave me what was going to be happening the next few days that I was going to listen to him, that I was going to obey him, that I was going to do all of these things. It, it's so strange when you're put in that situation because you never know how you're going to react. But my first thought wasn't, oh, I need to call 911. It was really more of a, what the hell is even happening? You're shocked by the sudden circumstance you're in without any sort of way to prepare for it. A lot of things become really clear, unfortunately, when you have a gun to your head. At that point, where my brain went is I went purely into survival mode. They had removed my phone, my laptop and stuff. I don't know where that was put. I still don't know to this day. Did you still have your clothes on? No, unfortunately. All I had a blanket in the corner that I was stuck in for the duration of this was really cold, really damp. I have to say this as a joke because I have to lighten something up in the middle of it. Of yeah. course, it had ants that would crawl up over me. <laughs> oh, God. So they didn't even clean up. They're dirty people. Oh, yeah. no. No. And I didn't know exactly where I was. I didn't know the exact address. And after an hour, it was very clear that this Jess person wasn't going to do anything. It was very clear that my chance out of there was if I could escape. And I had to wait for that to happen. Unfortunately, the person that did this, uh, Josh, works from home. So that adds another layer onto this. Because he's not leaving you alone at any point now, yeah. Yeah, he's literally in the next room with a door open, has eyesight on me. I don't want to dig into, like, each time it happened, but a lot of bad things happened. 
I was raped more times than I can count as I lost track. I know that's weird, but it feels like it's weird. I doubt it's weird, but how can you keep track of it? You're just trying to shut your brain down in that situation. That's the funny thing is my brain did kind of go into that state of there was a lot of stuff done to me. Like you hold a gun to my head and cut using a knife on my back, cut into me. And as funny as it is, it didn't hurt. I know it hurt, but my brain was in a place to where it's like, no, we're purely running logics here. We're not going to feel this. We're not going to let it happen. I'm sure you're in such a state where adrenaline and endorphins or everything are just constantly dumping and then fading out and dumping again. Yes. And honestly, the worst moments of it all is when you'd have your adrenaline low because your adrenaline can't just keep going for days at a time. It doesn't work. I was raped. I was, for lack of a better word, mutilated. I wasn't fed. No food. I think I got water maybe three times, which, you know, of course is intentional because past a certain point, you lose a lot of strength and a lot of mental prowess, I guess you could say. But without food and all and any kind of substance, you're just, you're numb and you're clouded and, and your body's weak. Yeah. I won't drag over those days over and over again. I was drugged a lot during them. There was a lot of rape. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, to be honest with you. And then I escaped. I managed to get out of there. He knew I had some money set aside for traveling in my bank account. I'm, you know, I'm sure that's a safe assumption to make. He wanted to take me to get cash out of an ATM. This was part of my own little manipulation in this is I convinced him that it would be a lot more simpler if I gave him the pin and the card and he just went, which bought me time to be alone for once. That's pretty brazen because I would have just assumed that going to the ATM and being out in public yourself would have been a greater opportunity to escape. So I'm, I'm surprised that this is the logic that you had. Yeah, I'm not saying it was the best logic. I just knew I didn't want to be near this person anymore. And that's totally logical right there. Exactly. You wanted him away from you. And I mean, it was clear we'd be going out and he'd have a gun. I had no chance at escape because he was right there. I wasn't ever bound up particularly well. I had this chain around my neck. I was pretty sure I could get out of it. That's part of this is there's a lot of decisions I made that I still feel like were wrong that could have maybe better gotten me justice afterwards or that I shouldn't have been there, that that sort of guilt still lingers to this day. I know it's not true. There's always this little nagging part of me, especially due to interactions I've had afterwards, that's like it's your fault for being there. Well, you got away, so you made some right decisions regardless. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So he went out with my debit card during that time. Jess didn't do anything. She was home during this, but she didn't do anything one way or the other. I actually tried to convince her to come with me. The Jess, we're talking about a person I had known for three or four years. Jess wasn't a bad person. I knew that. And Jess hadn't taken part in this, although she hadn't done anything to help it, which is terrible in its own right. He probably terrified the crap out of her. And even a few times he, he used as me as if I didn't do anything, he would do this to her. So he's definitely instigating this entire thing. And Jess is... Oh, he was a manipulator. Yeah. He was by the book, a psychopath. And she definitely was a victim. 
and so oh she was that's why i tried to get her out of there when i did yeah i mean at first when um, you were, when you were saying that she was just neutral i'm like what the hell but yeah she was a victim too she was scared and rightfully so i'm, I'm sure he held a gun to her i'm sure he was being normal at the time he moved in and then it went downhill and, right? oh I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely certain too because she had moved there from california she had apparently known him before then and she allowed him to move up there with her. You would think that he acted pretty, he was able to hold it really well. Anyway, she would not come with. With her help, I managed to get one of my bags, my cell phone, and my laptop, along with my purse, my wallet, just that very basic stuff you take traveling. And I got out the door. At the time, it must have been the most bizarre site. You know, I booked it from there after getting dressed. I did get dressed before office. It's the the little things, right? (laughs) I was not naked, but I had that opportunity to. I managed to run about three or four blocks away. I was in shock. I was shaking, wasn't even processing everything that had happened. You stop processing it. I acted like a totally reasonable human being and called a cab. (laughs) <laughs> not not the cops, not your family, but you, a cab, yeah. It's, a cab. Yeah. I don't know why my brain stopped at that, but it was just, I have to get as far as away as possible from this place as fast as I can, and then I'll worry about everything else. I ended up taking a cab to a hotel on the other side of town. Again, I'm sort of in this stupor. I don't know. I was experiencing the symptoms of shock. And I think part of me felt not really sure of what had even happened. And so before anything else, I was in my hotel room just trying to size everything up. I didn't realize I had three-inch long gashes on my back that were in bad shape. My perception had been survive and get out, not this part of my body hurts. That's how survival mode works. It's safety and food and shelter. It's not your superficial wounds, even if they are getting infected or anything. It's just getting to a safe place. And so I started calling family and I started calling two other friends. There is a little deviation down the line that some might find strange. And it's that I didn't immediately fly back to Minnesota, but I didn't have a support structure there. So we'll get into that later. But there's a reason for that. After talking to family and friends, I found out that this guy had been doing a fairly good job of impersonating me on texts and emails. Apparently, he went through, he sort of tried to see how I wrote things, how I talked to people, and he emulated that. Just was convinced everything was going okay. That's really creepy on so many different levels, but just thinking, what if you hadn't had escaped, how long would he have kept this up for? Oh, yeah. And this whole incident is what got me interested in psychology and true crime. Because number one, there was a part of me in the aftermath of this all that wanted to understand this type of person so I can see them from a mile away, so I can protect myself. You know, from your other, your podcast, you know, from all the stories that I had a fairly high chance of disappearing. Yeah. But you look at so many people who are put in situations like this and it usually leads to this horrific end. So in in knowing that, that was my reason for getting a cab and going to a hotel and just trying to get in contact with people I could trust because I felt so unsafe. I needed that more than I needed to tell a cop, go search his place right away. 
I needed that more than the medical attention, at least, and I'm not saying I needed it logically, but it was my mental process told me I needed that from that situation. In truth, I didn't even know what to do next. I was confused as like, do I just go to the cops? I'm pretty sure I need to go to a doctor. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stuff here that needs to happen. I stayed in my room for about four or five hours. I had it locked. I knew he wasn't coming, but it was a defense. I knew nobody could get through there that easily. First, I called the cops. Me being my very polite Midwestern self, decided to use the non-emergency number because what was happening had already all happened. From my point of view, it was like, okay, something really bad happened, but it's done with. Now I need a police officer to talk to. I get it. I do. You know, this is stuff that a few people I've I've talked to about this stuff. I've gotten flack for it. And so I guess I get a little defensive. I would tell anyone until they've been through such an extreme torturous event themselves and they don't know how they would respond. We can all sit back in the comfort of our own home and say, why did they do that? And when we're well fed, well slept and totally logical. And that's absolutely true. And it's a different situation once that gun is to your head. And that's just the truth of it. During those few hours in that hotel room, I took sort of stock of myself. My entire neck was black and blue from being strangled. I had cuts on my back. I was bruised all over. Parts of me were bleeding that really aren't supposed to bleed related to rape. That was concerning as well. So after I got off the phone with the police, both me and them had agreed that me going to medical first was the better choice. So I went and I got medical treatment. They took the rape kit. They took pictures themselves, the, the hospital did. After I got a few stitches on my back, got put on antibiotics, and I got put on a white anti-anxiety med because I was from out of town. They didn't know my medical history. They didn't want to give me anything strong. What I had arranged with the police was to have them come to the hotel I was in after getting back from medical To give your statement, yeah. Exactly. Go over everything. And that's, you know, a medical had agreed to take the pictures, and they did. They took pictures of every single little thing. When the cop shows up, he calls me down to the hotel lobby. I thought this was completely inappropriate. Other people may have a different view on it. But the first thing that was completely inappropriate is he had me empty all my pockets. He had me take off my shoes. And he had me take off my belt in front of everybody in a busy downtown Portland hotel. And then I asked him if we could go up to my room, go into a conference room or something, somewhere private. And he said, no, he wanted to do it right there in the lobby. This really isn't the first time I've heard them ask a rape victim to tell their story in public with other people around. And... I don't understand. I mean, some some of the stories I've heard is they're in the police station and they're in the lobby of the police station. They won't even take them into a conference room. And this practice needs to stop because that's really, really screwed up. It is. It immediately puts it like the cop is thinking I did something. Just from the take your shoes off, make sure there's no weapons on you. And I'm sitting there shaking and in tears in a lobby. I'm not going to jump you, guy. I'm not. And now everyone in the lobby is looking at you because they think you're being arrested. Exactly. And that's exactly what they thought was happening. A manager actually walked over and asked if I had been doing something illegal in the hotel. Anyways, 
I give my account, the best account I could give right then. I tell him where to go get the rape kit the hospital took. I tell him that they also have pictures. In my neck, he could clearly see something terrible had happened. I was strangled to unconsciousness four or five times, and that doesn't happen easily. He takes his little report. He asks me for the address of where it happened, and I didn't have the exact address, but I, I actually was able to point out the place to him on Google Maps, of all things. And I said, it was right there. This is where I got the cab. That is where I know I was. That place, you'll find these people on the paperwork or at these addresses. He made a few comments to me that to this day still bite. One of the things he said, and, and I talked about this earlier, I'm transgender, male to female, and I'm tall. I'm six foot five. And he said, well, this should never have happened. You should have just fought your way out. Another comment he made, because my ID was from Minnesota, he goes, well, how am I not supposed to know you just came here for a night of fun with these people and it just went badly? No, I wasn't here for some kinky sexual encounter. I was here to see a friend. And even if you did come for some fun and it went badly, well, yeah. as soon as it goes badly, that's called illegal and they need to do something about it. Exactly. Those were his last comments. I can't trust you, whatever. I'm going to go back to the station and I'll look into it. At that point, with how I was treated and this being, you know, seven, eight hours out of the ordeal, I really just started breaking down. I think I cried for a day straight. I'm not one to cry. I stayed two nights up in the hotel room just because I didn't know what else to do. Tried to get in contact with the officers. And it would turn out a little further down the line that, no, they did nothing. They never got the rape kit from the hospital. They never got the pictures. They never did anything. It's because he didn't believe you and he didn't care. That's it. Yeah, and that's it. And it's just like, look, I don't care if he, had, if he would go punch me up on their damn computer system. I am not a criminal. And I'm not somebody who ever has done anything to manipulate or mislead or hurt anybody. I'd get my ass beat as a kid, and I wouldn't even throw a punch in self-defense. I'm one of those people that's very passive. So it's frustrating, and it makes me angry at this point in my recovery. I was just waved off. It was just another little police report. It's like I was complaining about somebody's noise. There was no levity on that part of it. They just fill it out, and it's just another piece of paper in the file. And it's up to that investigating officer to take it to the next step. And if they have zero interest in doing that, well, police officers actually have no duty to protect us. And they can determine whether justice is sought after or not. And this sounds like a horror movie to me, where you're kidnapped and raped and tortured for a whole week. And then nobody even believes you. Yeah. So the people at the medical place, they were the first people that said anything nice to me after that incident, and they were super caring, they gave a ding. They knew what had happened. They could tell what had happened very clearly. I had an IV in me because I was dehydrated. They could tell I needed food. They could tell that I was strangled. They could tell I was cut up. They could tell I was raped. For a police department to just ignore that, I don't care where it is, because you know very well it happens all over the place. It removes so much self-esteem from the victim because you feel like, I guess I'm not worth anything. I guess either I must just be a liar or I'm not worth enough to do more than talk to me for 10 minutes. 
we might have had a serial killer rapist at large, and no, they don't care. Yeah. In the aftermath, I actually caught a train early to go up to Tacoma, Washington, and I ended up staying with a friend and her parents for a week, and that was healing. Honestly, people are going to criticize me, like, why didn't you go down to the police station and cause a scene and stuff? I was broken in every sense of the word. I'm glad you didn't because they probably would have arrested you for disturbing the peace or trespassing. Oh, I'm sure. But I guess I'm still defensive on it because people point say to me, it's like, well, you should have just done more. Well, I wasn't in a position to do more. I was in a position of, I just want to be safe. That police station normally to me wouldn't be safe, but especially after that interaction wasn't safe. So I went to Tacoma, Washington, spent a week with a friend and her parents, and that helped a lot. It really did. Time and time again, I've thanked them because they were super understanding. They didn't even ask any questions. My friend just went sightseeing with me. We went on a road trip during that time. It was just quiet and a place to recover. That's what I needed. That's what you need after that. You need time to even just come to terms that it's happened. Most of the major stuff in the aftermath started happening after that week, after I flew back to uh, St. Paul, which is where I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. Fun fact, my family, of course, lived in Minnesota. I had only come out as transgender to them three, four months before this, and I was disowned. I had no social contacts. I had no support system or anything. I want to say the first few days after I got back, when I was just alone in my apartment, that's when I first really started having flashbacks. Those were scary. It's absolutely bizarre how your mind can just throw you back into a scene after trauma like that. To this day, I still have nightmares. I have night terrors where I feel the pain of it. I feel every single little thing, I re-experience it. And it's probably always going to be with me. But then the really scary part was during this whole intense first few days where I had untreated PTSD problems, almost unconsciously, I found myself standing at the top of my apartment building, which was 10 stories up. I sort of woke up staring at myself, looking down, down the edge of the building. What had caused me to be in that position, that close to uh, killing myself, was just the pain of everything, the doubt. I wanted it to stop on every level. But once I had that moment where I was there, a lot of things became clearer for me. And I decided that, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to do this. Mostly because I equated it in my mind. If I did that, he won. I'm giving him the power to end my life. That's what that would have done. I got back down, got back inside my apartment, and arranged myself to go into a psych ward. And it was like a three-day observation, but it was just for safety reasons. Through that and after that, I started medication, which was actually super helpful. That's one thing. I've run into a lot of people who feel shame for needing to take stuff for mental health reasons, and there should be no shame in that because, trust me, I needed them. I still need some of them to this day, and if that helps me live my life to the best of my ability, then I'm more than happy to have those pills. Sorry for my tangent. No, I don't know why. There would be a lot of shame for it. It's what keeps you balanced. Exactly. A few months later, I found out he had been arrested for spousal abuse. 
he made bail and they lost track of him. So now you're thinking, like, is he going to come after me? What the hell? Yeah, exactly. What that spurred me down was actually I started getting into private investigation. And I never did anything that was, of course, like full-fledged private investigation. This was purely selfish. So I went to classes, got myself to the minimum requirements to where I could get access to places so I could at least try track him, like known addresses. I've done that now for eight years because I want to know where this person is. I will never run into them again. Have they been arrested multiple times? No, not that I've been able to find at least. They were arrested multiple times before this, before the incident with me. Same sorts of things. He was ex-military. I don't know exactly what he did, but he was ex-military. As far as I know, he's across the Canadian border from what I've been able to find. I don't know what the whole situation is with that. That's not too helpful. I can tell you one thing that did happen, um, and this happened two years after this took place. I got a phone call from the district attorney there. He was very apologetic. That was basically it. He apologized for clearly everything that had not happened, that it should have happened. He said I would have to be there in person, but he offered me, for me to come there in person and go over stuff with them in court and that sort of thing to try get something put on this absent person. And at that point, I just said, it's pointless. It's not going to help me heal. And he's, for all we know, a thousand miles away. You don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. We're done. It is what it is. You missed your chance. I guess I don't know what they were going to accomplish with you coming back. I guess they, they, they wanted me to take statements and maybe try dig up information. I don't know. I don't know. But he wanted me. He said, if you really want to do this, you'll have to come back to Portland. And I just was like, yeah, I'm never going back to Portland. Thank you very much. They have their police report. They have the names of the people. Exactly. <laughs> So you come out of that with absolutely no justice. It opens your mind to a lot of things, too. Well, it opens your eyes to all of the problems with rape culture in our country. You become super aware of that sort of thing. Because before this, the only time I'd ever dealt with a cop was when somebody ran a red light and hit my car. That was it. But obviously, when I needed them, they didn't care. And that's one thing if it's on a super small scale, but we've seen it's on a huge scale. And we've seen that rape gets played off just willy-nilly many, many times. You probably, if you listen to Gen Y, you hear me make the, the joke, although I'm yes. not trying to be funny, is you should have told him that he was selling drugs out of the apartment. <laughs> actually, I'm, that, that's a detail that's gotten lost, but actually he was selling drugs out of the apartment, and I told them this. I would have just assumed they would have been there in a heartbeat with that nope. detail. <laughs> no, nope. it's just like, I'm not trying to do harm to anybody. My God, I'm just asking, at the very base of it, my request was, can you please gather this information and make a police report? Because I need an advocate right now. That's supposed to be you in terms of what just happened to me. And they completely failed. So I guess I should touch on at least the silver lining of the aftermath. Um, it's not a good thing, but it's not a good thing in the context. It, it, it can't be. Thanks to the time I've spent in therapy for the last seven, eight years, I was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, which I never knew. 
And that has actually helped improve my quality of life a bit. So hooray, silver lining. Well, it's it's given you something to understand about yourself. Yes, absolutely. And it's just, you know, coming out of this, I never want this to happen to anyone again. I know it will. I know it has, of course. You see casual rape jokes. You see things where people who are raped are just brushed off. The damage you're doing to those people isn't just not arresting the person. The damage you're doing to those people is telling them that their life isn't worth enough for you to care. It's the re-victimizing the victim all day. Yeah. And that's the problem. I always mock the system in a way because they say, oh, we're, we got to be tough on crime, but never seen tough on victims. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how it comes down. And unless you're out on a corner looking suspicious, you're not going to get caught. Everyone's like, well, how do you get away with the perfect murder? And I say, just commit one. Half the time they won't even investigate. Like <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's no real follow up there. You know, if you've been kidnapped, abducted, tortured, and raped for four or five days straight and there's zero investigation, well, that doesn't take a genius, yeah. you know? And I, at that point, when I saw that he had been arrested those few months later, I called them. I called the damn police department there. And I was like, look, the guy you, you have is the guy related to all of this other stuff. Investigate it, please. And of course, they never did because charges were never brought. And I should say for the record that, yes, I told the cop when I was interviewed that press all the charges you can. This guy has to be stopped. If they had taken you seriously, if they had the rape kit, and if they had taken a sample from him when he was in custody and matched all this together, then it could have been stopped. Yeah, it could have been stopped. Yeah, super easily. It's just one of those things. So other than that, my life since has been slowly recovering from that. And honestly, I think doing this podcast with you, which I, I really appreciate the chance for, is part of my healing. It's part of me saying... This happened to me, this happened to Zoe, and it's part of my life, whether I like it or not. I can't erase it, but I can learn from it, I can try grow from it, and I can try help other people. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's other people that probably didn't even experience a fifth of what you did, but just hearing your voice and how you've gotten through it can inspire them. Suffering is, it's relative. You know, somebody may not have been held for five days, but they may have been raped. The suffering from that can be equal, at least in regards to their own mental state as to what I went through. And I never want people to think that, oh, I was only raped or I was only abused. I have no right to complain as much as these people or to speak up and talk about it. No, you have every right because you're valuable. You're good. They matter. Exactly. You said it perfectly, really. <laughs> yeah. because that's the thing is, you're not lesser from my perspective if you just got raped. A horrible thing was committed against you, and you deserve justice, care, and understanding. It's not a position of, oh, I, I suffered worse than most people. I don't really care about that. I care about helping most people. I care about this not happening to anybody, or at least if it does happen, that it's taken seriously. I think people may find your story almost unbelievable because of the response by law enforcement 
And yet, when you were telling me, sadly, I, I wasn't surprised at all. I was just like, yeah, that sounds about typical. And see, that's actually something I've run into relating my story is that somehow people think I would make it all up, that it can't be real. They can see the scars on my back if they want to. I don't care. It's real. It happened. I'm not on some campaign against the Portland police or anything. I don't care anymore. That's history. That's what happened. I got an apology and I accepted it. My point is, we need to work in this country to be better about this in the future. Well, you're doing really well. And for you to even be able to have this conversation with me shows the huge strides you've, you've taken since this incident. You know, attack. I've related it on like Reddit before and stuff. And of, and of course, I get a lot of non-belief there. But I've never talked to somebody who wasn't like my therapist or my, uh, my fiance who in this situation. And it's been different. It's hard, but I'm glad I'm doing it. A little off topic, but I remember when I was uh, interviewing Carrie Max Cook, who was the guy on death row and was raped and tortured repeatedly in prison. All he wanted was justice. He didn't want an exoneration. He wanted the prosecution and the state to be held accountable for what they did to him. And he even rejected plea deals and stuff that would have let him walk a free man and be totally exonerated. But he was like, no, I want them held accountable. And no one understood him and no one understood his logic. And then he talked to me and I was like, no, I get it. I was like, you want to burn the whole system down because of what they did to you. And I don't know why that's such a hard position to understand because <laughs> to me it's normal. <laughs> right. I got into true crime and stuff. You were the first part. Gen Y was the first podcast I started listening to when I first started getting into true crime after this. And which is, I've listened to you since like episode one. So Man, thank I you. love you guys. You know that it's not just the, the, the problem isn't the one officer not taking it seriously. At some point that police report had to go by somebody else's eyes. Why didn't it get viewed by somebody else and they took it seriously. The problem isn't the single person. The problem is the system at this point. And, I, and we've seen it in a whole bunch of different respects other than just rape. Yeah. And touching on rape in prison, no, that's not okay. Anybody who says that's okay is disgusting. People don't get put in prison to be raped. That is not a form of punishment. Even when it comes to, say, a child molester, a pedophile, and they're like, oh, well, they'll get theirs in jail or prison. I think, well, by allowing even the worst of the worst, this mob justice, you're allowing it for everybody, even somebody that didn't pay parking tickets and it went too far and they got put behind bars because they couldn't pay yeah. a fee. You're allowing them to have abuse, rape, whatever. As soon as you allow it for one person or you okay it for one, you're okaying it for everyone. And yeah, you make it a casual discussion topic. Yeah. When people talk about rape culture, that's what we mean is like rape shouldn't be a casual discussion topic. It should be approached the way Gen Y does it or the way people do and calling it out for what it is. It's not okay. It's something that we've determined is outside of our legal system. Nobody gets put in prison and their punishment is to be raped. 
No, that's not part of the deal. That's not part of our system. And if, if that's the case, then, hey, you know what? Let's just have vigilantes go around and doing that. Why even bother putting them in prison? Exactly. The logic goes so far. I mean, I think of a minor getting a life sentence for something they did when they were 15 or 16. And I think, well, why don't we just put them to death? Well, that's, that's yeah. just going too far. And I'm like, but giving them a life sentence, like putting a 16-year-old behind bars for the rest of their life is good? They're 16. It's ridiculous. I should say this just because I'm touching on it, but, and you've seen it, I know you have, and I guess that's why I, I want to mention it, is there's a lot of people out there in prison who shouldn't be. There's a lot of people who are on the end of false justice, who eventually do get exonerated. And are they treated fairly when they get exonerated? Almost never. They always have that stigma. They always have their reputation that's yep. been destroyed. That's my, my little plug. I hope people can realize, too, that, you know, I went through a lot of shame for what happened. I went through the guilt of feeling like it was my fault for just being there. And then a lot of shame for even how the cops handled it. I hated myself for years because I felt like I did something wrong and it was my fault this person was out on the street still. To any victim out there, it's not your fault. It's not our fault. People used and abused us. We didn't ask for it to happen. Just please remember that. And you reported it. You did your due diligence. Yes. And a lot of people, they can't even bring themselves to report it because it's so painful. Oh, and I can totally understand it. I do too. I absolutely understand why somebody doesn't report it. You at least reported it. And then we get to see what happens when you even do that. Yeah. So that's it. That's my story from what happened to me when I was traveling to Portland to see a friend. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.